Welcome to the ACO Show. This is Josh Israel. I'm a physician and a medical director here at Allidate. And today you're going to hear our interview with John Toronto. Dr. Toronto is a medical director here who has a lot of expertise in risk coding, and he has a lot of interesting things to say about it. But I'm delighted to start this podcast by talking to Dr. Farzad Mostashari. Welcome back, Farzad. Hey, thanks for having me. So I know you have a lot of thoughts on risk coding as well. So certainly would love to hear your thoughts. You, you have a pretty deep and long experience in this issue. What do you think we should know? Well, I think the first part is why, why do risk coding at all? And I think to understand that from a policy perspective, you have to go back to a Medicare Advantage. In the early years of the Medicare Advantage program, there was a fair amount of cherry picking where the government would pay basically the same amount for every Medicare recipient. And so the huge incentive in the system was uh, find healthy people. Uh, Don't go after sick people. And so you would see shenanigans like putting the recruitment office on the second floor or offering, you know, gym memberships or whatever to try to get healthy people into the, their recruitment for these Medicare Advantage managed care plans. The, the introduction of risk adjustment where if the patient's risk score is 2.0, you get, you get a $20,000 budget. If the risk score is 1.0, you get a $10,000 budget. That completely changed the incentive structure for Medicare Advantage plans, and we saw exactly the uh, the intent now that you actually see a bunch of Medicare Advantage plans who are really, really interested in going after people with multiple chronic conditions and comorbidities because those are the people you can make the biggest difference in. So that's the good side of the really understanding the policy intent behind risk adjustment. Right, because if you don't do that, then you'd want to avoid sick patients. So that's not such a bad thing. Exactly. And and that's actually a lot of misconceptions around the work that we do. A lot of times docs are like, wait, uh, are are you going to have me get rid of my sick patients? And I'm like, no, no, no. We want want you to take better care of the sickest patients. That's how you create the biggest change in the system. So that's the background for Medicare Advantage. And how about in our work here in accountable care organizations? Well, in, in Medicare Advantage, it is a huge issue and, you know, the, it's, it's like top of mind for absolutely for Medicare Advantage plans is, is their, their risk score, their RAF score. Uh, and they spend a ton of resources doing risk coding and home visits whose uh, big purpose of it is, is just getting, getting those diagnoses down and submitting supplementary files and doing all this kind of stuff. Um, so for accountable care organizations, it, it's it, it's not like that. So it's not like if you increase the risk score by ten percent, you get you know you get a ten percent increase in the budget for the ACO. In fact, for ACOs, they, there was this double bind uh, up until the present day, where if the risk scores go down, you're docked the entire amount that the risk scores go down. But if they go up, you just stay flat. So it was this situation where at first a lot of people didn't. Uh, including us, didn't pay much attention to it at all. And then we were hit with the reductions in the, the, the final reconciliation. So here's how it would work. You, and this, this literally happened to us, where we, um, we had a 20,000-person ACO. You reduce uh, hospitalizations. You work so hard. You prevent 200 hospitalizations. 200 hospitalizations averted. That's $2 million of savings that you generated and you maintain 99% of your risk score. Your risk score went from 1.0 to 0.99, and that was a $2 million loss in your budget. So just because you didn't keep 
putting down the chronic conditions the patients actually have, a 1% drop in your risk score would equal $2 million of hard-fought savings for the docs. And we didn't get a savings check for the docs because we didn't maintain the risk scores. That's something that they didn't put down because it has never mattered to them in a fee-for-service world what are the diagnoses you put down. So in the ACO context, it's not offense, but it sure is important for defense. We do not want to lose the hard-fought gains that we've created on the saving side just because of the, you know, the risk score dropping by even just a tiny bit. But for accountable care organizations, changing your risk score under no circumstance could increase your budget, but if you didn't maintain the correct, accurate diagnoses for your patient, your budget could fall. Correct. Okay. Now, under the, the newest rules that came out of Medicare, um, a, a lot of people had been saying, this isn't fair that the scores can only go down, never go up. They allowed for 3% increase over a five-year contract period. So we're not talking, you know, Medicare Advantage opportunity for, you know, risk upcoding and, and, and making a ton of money. But I think it does provide a little bit of leeway for patient population getting sicker to be reflected accurately in your benchmark. And what about the benefits of this for patients or anybody else? Um, look, I think the, the main, this is the one part of what we do, uh, everything else that we do, the focus on access to primary care, on quality, on transitions of care, on care management, uh, prevention, all of that is really resonates, I think, with the core mission of better care, lower cost. This is the one piece of what we do which seems more check the boxy, but even here, I think there are, if you really focus on the North Star, there are ways to find the meaning, find the value, even in, in this. And I would point to two things. One is, it's a way to have everyone on the same page in terms of what the patient's diagnoses are. And particularly for primary care, it's pretty hard to argue that you know you shouldn't write down what the patient's diagnoses are with as much specificity as you can. And oftentimes, the primary care doc, if you present them with all the diagnoses that everyone else has given the patient, there are aha and revelatory moments. Like, oh, I didn't know that the cardiologist thought that you have systolic dysfunction, or I didn't know that you have a triple A, abdominal aortic aneurysm. We had a case where a doctor looked at that uh, suggestion uh, that a hospital had put a triple A diagnosis on, on the patient and then was like, what, really, they do? They went and examined them and sure enough, they had a 10 centimeter triple A that needed surgery uh, that they hadn't known about and hadn't followed up on. So there's an information sharing aspect uh, that, that I think is, is pretty good. And then the original purpose of this is to uh, predict who is going to have higher costs than other people. And we use that score centrally in our predictive modeling of who needs the most care, who needs the most attention. Um, so having the, the accurate diagnoses in as much specificity as you can. And, and look, at we don't play games. We're not out there like some Medicare Advantage plans in Florida that are, you know, looking ordering chest x-rays so they can look for calcification in the arch of the aorta. Like, that's not what we do. All we're saying is if they have the diagnosis, whether it's based on your EHR or based on other people's diagnoses, let's make sure that we have accurate and complete uh, list of those diagnoses down. Yeah, we know these stories. We've uh, You and I have both read the recent New Yorker article um, detailing some Medicare Advantage uh, fraud lawsuits and it's been interesting at Allidade that, as you'll hear from Dr. Toronto's interview, that's not the issue we've come up against. What we come up against much more is doctors whose patients clearly have depression 
or obesity, um, alcohol dependence, and they don't write it down. They're uncomfortable talking about it. And and our take is sort of like, come on, write it down. It will help your patients. We want to communicate that information. And we've never even had to consider um, coding for things that aren't fully accurate because we're spending all our time really just trying to get the docs to put in the record what is there, what should be there. Yeah, it's so interesting. You know, I, I often think of, of the things we don't see anymore because we're so used to it. And in a fee-for-service world, these docs are seeing 30, 40 patients a day. And for every single patient, you know, to build that 99214, you're, you're documenting, you know, two to nine elements of review of systems and four elements of history of present illness and an element of family and social history and make sure that you get 12 elements of uh, the physical exam in. <laughs> and they're used to all of that, right? 40 times a day, make sure that you document the little bits and pieces of the exam so that you can get paid in 99214 40 times a day, every day. And here we're saying once a year, just write down the diagnoses. Mm-hmm. And so I, I think as you switch from fee-for-service to a value-based mindset, the value-based world is, for better or for worse, it's all about total cost of care, which is risk-adjusted. So how much, and going back to, to where we started, right? How much this person is supposed to cost depends on how many conditions they have. So we just have to put down once a year what are all the conditions the patient has. That's that's basically it. Great. Thanks, Farzad, for the for the broad view. And now let's get to Dr. Toronto's interview and we'll get a little thicker into the weeds. Thank you. We're here today with Dr. John Toronto. Thanks for joining us, John. Thanks for having me. So you came from background as a practicing family physician, and we've had several folks on the podcast thus far with clinical backgrounds, including Josh and myself. So could you take us to your journey from family doc to Allidade? Yeah, sure thing. There are a lot of doctors in the world. <laughs> um, scary. So I actually come out of the FQHC world, and I started... Um, after I got out of residency, really working with uh, EHRs, learned only because no one else in my FQHC knew how to do anything, so I taught myself. So from EHR master to clinical informatics to population health, did that for a while. And my last job before I joined Allied is actually the chief operating officer in FQHC. So we wanted to talk today a little bit about risk scoring. And for anybody who's not in the weeds of healthcare change, of accountable care, Medicare Adventures, they're not even going to know what the term is or why it's important. but it is so important to us here at Allidade, really anybody in this value-based space. So why don't we start with the basics? What What is risk scoring? So risk scoring is um, really the the way you let a, a payer know how sick your patients are, right? At, based on ICD-10 codes. So what diseases do they have? How much are they gonna cost? So what, why is it called risk scoring? Well, it's called scoring because it's it's mathematical. But every every condition has um, a weight and you add those weights up and you there's some multipliers and demographics come into it and then everyone gets a score and that score roughly equates to a budget. But what about the risk piece? Why is it called risk? Well, I mean, ultimately it's an actuarial tool, right? So that's all about risk. So, you know, you would anticipate that a diabetic with complications would cost three times more than a diabetic without complications, as an example. Mm-hmm. And that's the risk of being a diabetic with complications. Mm-hmm. And for an accountable care organization? Well, ultimately we're trying to save money, 
And the only way you can save money is to know how much something is going to cost, how much a patient is going to cost, and then provide care underneath that, underneath that benchmark or underneath that budget. The risk scoring actually is what sets that, hmm. sets that budget. So take two patients, a 65-year-old woman with hypertension, she has one risk score, a 95-year-old um, gentleman with prostate cancer. Those are two different people, two different risks, two different budgets. Mm-hmm. So I sort of think of it as the government gives you a certain budget per patient, and then the goal is to keep them healthy and spend less. Would you say that's a, an okay summary? Absolutely. That's a fair way to look at it. Mm-hmm. And that gets into uh, something that we've been talking about in terms of value-based care in general, which I know that you said before is better care at lower costs. Um, and knowing what those costs are, you have to communicate them, and one way to do that is via risk scoring. Absolutely. So what is the... Could you take us back a bit? What, where does it even come from? Where does the methodology come from? Like, why do we have it? So my understanding is this is from Medicare Advantage. It's been around for a while. Um, and it really is. So for, for Medicare Advantage plans, they need to know the risk of their population because it, the Medicare basically pays them based on how sick their patients are. And they are in the game of setting a high bar and bringing, coming in underneath that bar to save money um, for the system. And that's how they generate profits. What do I need to know about this? Like, what's the need to know as a, at the provider level? Well, I mean, fundamentally, if you believe that we're going from a, a volume-based world to a value-based world, you, you need to understand this because in the past, as a physician, you were paid by what you did, mm-hmm. right? What level of visit you did, a 99213 or 4 or 5, and that's how you got paid. Now, in the value-based world, it's actually what... It's not, it's not what, but why, mm-hmm. right? Is it a complicated diabetic? Do they have diabetes, I mean, depression and remission? That's the difference. So as we move from the volume world where you're just about cranking out units to the value world, you really need to understand this because this is how it works. It's fundamental to your success. If you don't do this well, if you blow it off because you feel like you don't have time, you won't be successful. So it sort of ties everything together. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and I think you, you do a great job of focusing on that that budget piece, but also that communication piece. And we talked about that before, but I think it's worth going back to, this is how whoever the payer is knows how sick your patient is or well your patient is. Right. And that's actually can get into this, you know, I don't have, one of the things I hear, and maybe I'm getting ahead of ourselves mm-hmm. in the pushback is, I don't have time for this. Mm-hmm. And I just heard this on Friday, I was in a practice and said, I don't have time, I got all this stuff I'm looking at, I don't have time to click through this and look at this and add these problems to the problem list. And I heard this, he said it two or three times, and I finally said, you really don't have, you, in, in the reality is you can't afford not to do this, <laughs> right? right? You, you need to, if you're managing someone who has substance abuse um, or alcohol use, and it's affecting their care, and you're having that conversation, you need to document it, you need to code for it. That's how it makes a difference. One of the things that's been a, a learning for me is I just assumed that people would once they understood the issue, why it was important, it was just a matter of getting a workflow. But we've all learned that there are some diagnoses that the providers know about but still don't want to put in the chart for various reasons. Can you talk about some of those? Yeah, I mean, I, I think our, our one of our largest challenges, and we were just talking about this earlier, is depression. Depression is one that we probably do a decent job of identifying and treating, but we don't want to bring it up again for fear that we, it's going to be a longer conversation than we want to have. Um, there are other concerns about the diagnosis of depression. We see people who have mood disorder and then they have a prescription that manages their depression. The concern about labeling someone for, with depression for you know external circumstances, i.e. they won't be able to get a gun, 
right? In some places, if you have a behavioral health problem, you can't get a permit, you know. We could talk about that and how that fits into suicide, right? Well, that's another topic. Um, life insurance is another thing. Again, when I hear that from providers, I don't feel comfortable. I just suggest that they move on and find places where they are comfortable. Substance abuse is another huge example. Alcohol use, um, where a patient has hypertension and they drink too much. Can you have a conversation where you're just talking about harm reduction and then document that conversation and use a code? Mm -hmm. This is another challenge. Physicians, the three of us, we like to fix things, right? Some of this isn't about fixing things. It's about reducing harm, mm -hmm. having a hard conversation and coding for it and getting credit for it. Mm -hmm. That to me is still, it's still a challenge mm -hmm. for most of our docs. So just to play, you know, the devil's advocate here for the uh, curmudgeonly provider, a role I may or may not pay well, play well. I don't um, know any of those people. Yes, exactly. Um, I think I could say that. Um, could this distract from providing better care? We talked, you, you said that this is, you can't afford not to do it. But if I'm a doctor and I say, look, I want to spend my time worrying about managing that person with depression and not worry about what the budget is for it um, because the budget I'm worried about is my own time you know the, the the ledger of time that I get to spend with my patients and extra clicks mean time away from doing that yeah I mean I think that an argument can be made for that but I think there is also a counter argument that better coding represents better care for a couple of reasons one is think about your patient with diabetic kidney disease who goes to the emergency room you have that problem on their problem list it shows up at the emergency room through a health information exchange, and now you're saving time and money because they know if they're gonna to need to give someone an antibiotic that they, they think about the kidney disease. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's one example. That's better care. Sure. So there, there, there are five Ds that I really encourage people to think about. And this is, again, thinking about the Medicare population. And the first one is diabetes um, with complications. Diabetes, uncomplicated diabetes in a 65-year-old is, is rare. Um, I call it a unicorn. It just it almost doesn't happen, so you shouldn't see that. Um, depression, depression is a huge deal, it affects tons of people, um, but the thing that most providers don't understand is the depression actually, depression or depression and remission. So once depressed, always depressed, you need to understand that. And that's been something we've been working on trying to get people to understand and actually code appropriately. Just to clarify, you don't mean that people are always depressed, but that depression and remission is a diagnosis that should be given every year. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So depression waxes and wanes over time. But if you've been depressed now, you're, you're no longer depressed. There's a remission code you can use. Mm -hmm. has the same risk weight. Because clinically, you know that that person's at risk of being actively depressed again. Sure. Um, the third D is donuts, which is actually obesity. And that's because, again, that's a hard conversation that we don't always have. People with a BMI over 40 or a BMI of 35 with a, with a comorbid condition can be coded for morbid obesity. Mm -hmm. That's important to know. And then the last two Ds are probably where the conversations are the hardest, but the opportunity is, is some of the greatest. And that's drugs, certainly opioid, opioid dependence, opioid dependence and remission, um, alcohol, alcohol dependence, alcohol abuse, but even alcohol use. So I've really been encouraging my docs to have the conversation to think about um, screening for alcohol use. And if you have somebody who says they drink, and I'm doing air quotes, um, two glasses of wine a day, they're probably drinking more than that, and they have high blood pressure, have a conversation about them drinking less. Mm -hmm. Again, as you taught me, it's harm reduction and code for it. So those are, those are my mm -hmm. five Ds. The one that surprised me most on that list was the donuts. You know, as a psychiatrist talking with patients about um, depression was my bread and butter, you know, substance abuse too. I understand that not everybody 
is trained and feels totally comfortable with it. But I just assume that all primary care docs, any family physician would be very comfortable talking about weight. It is the third rail, mm-hmm. right? And the, the, you know, we, I've done this when you and I have talked publicly. You are more likely to talk to your patients about weight than I am based mm-hmm. on our relative BMI. <laughs> <laughs> so there's, there's, you know, and so um, in certain markets, uh, no, the conversation doesn't happen. For the record, well, Dr. Israel and Dr. Toronto are very svelte, fit, <laughs> fit gentlemen. Sure, on, radi- on radio, yes. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. um, but I, I think it's still, it, it is, it can be a difficult conversation. And I've, I've heard examples, so someone comes in for, you know, ear pain and someone mentions their BMI is elevated and says they're obese and then the doctor walks in and the patient's mad, right? Um, yeah, they know they're overweight. They know they're obese. It's how that message is delivered. It's still, it's still tricky. I think the other thing is, um, certainly happens in the pediatric population is we get used to seeing people who are big, which is why when I do these talks, I show people pictures so they can look at what a BMI of 40 looks like. BMI of 40 is not that big. You can walk around anywhere, even Bethesda, where people are svelte, as you said, <laughs> um, and find people with BMIs over sure. 40. Now, shifting gears just a little bit to specifically how we support this process at Allidade. So one big uh, element of that is the annual wellness visit, which I don't think we've had another opportunity to talk about yet. So can you give a little background on the annual wellness visit and how risk coding is a part of that or how that's a vehicle for risk coding? Yeah, so an annual wellness visit, a well-done annual wellness visit is a beautiful thing. It really is a fundamental building block of, of population health. But in terms of risk coding, one of the requirements for a Medicare annual wellness visit is that um, you update the problem list. And we take that very literally, and that updated problem list is then sent to CMS. So you can code for every problem that they have during the annual wellness visit at, with, with really less requirements that, that you would normally require for the documentation if it was part of an ENM visit. The other piece of this that's important as a sort of sidebar is that it's not enough, we found, just to put it on a claim, to bill for it, but we have to make sure that it goes from the provider to the biller and doesn't get taken off because some of our systems aren't set, even without systems, some of our, some of our billers say, oh, I'm gonna put four codes on the claim to make sure that that gets from the provider, right? They've now had the time, spent the time and put everything on their claim. It gets all the way to CMS. So that's the other, the other piece of it. Right, because we've heard sometimes that people's EHR sometimes won't take more than a certain number of claims, right? Yeah. It's so it can happen at the biller. The biller can pull them off. Mm-hmm. We've had the, the clearinghouse pull them off. The EHR will pull them off. So lots of different places where the, all of this work sort of goes for naught or can mm-hmm. go for naught. And something in the interest of full disclosure, I work closely on this effort with Dr. Toronto. So we've seen you know the whole uh, gamut of, of actions, like he said. Uh, one of the things is that there's a, there is a code for an annual wellness visit and people think, oh, I have coded for that. I've dropped the single code. And we've sort of missed the point of communicating the full picture of a patient's complexity. Absolutely. And I don't think we can over-message this or, you know, keep our ground game going to make sure it's working. Yeah. Now, you do a lot of work at federally qualified health centers and rural health centers, and you and I have had some conversations about this, the different challenges of getting providers there to take risk coding, um, to take it on with seriousness. Well, can you say some more about that? Yeah, I think that... That is a, it's a super hard challenge anytime you're working with providers who are employed, right? What's in it for them? If, the, if they're in an ACO that's successful, and we have to define successful to begin with, but what, 
what do they get if they save money? And that's not been um, really described to them in advance. Mm -hmm. So why should they do extra work, mm -hmm. right? When in their mind, and I've been one of these people, I understand, I'm here, I'm doing this work that no one else is going to do, that's pretty good, right? So it's understand, for mm -hmm. me, I have, I've been there, so when I'm sitting there talking to these people, I know what they're thinking. Right, they gave at the office, they're working hard every exactly, day. <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> Exactly. So I always try to say, look, you think I'm going to go away like I'm the flavor of the month, but I'm not. I'll be back in a quarter and we'll talk about this again. Yeah. It's taken a while for FQHCs to be successful, but we have FQHCs that are really, it's taking them a while, but they're killing it. They're doing really well. The question that I have, uh, John, is delivering this message, can you effectively deliver this message on risk coding or value to providers if you're not a provider? Do you think you could do that, do what you do? Not at the medical director level necessarily, but you do a lot of communication broadly for every facet of Allidaid. Um, I know doctors can be very uh, clubby in their mentality. Is that, a, is that diplomatic enough? Um, so in the, part of the genesis of this, before joining Allidaid, I worked in, the, uh, in government and uh, in the U.S. Senate and was working as an outreach person to many provider groups and I was the only staffer in the US Senate that was also a physician and people were always amazed that I was there as a physician and I thought I don't know how you do this and not be a physician or a nurse or a PA or an NP or somebody that knows what it's like to actually see and, and, and be involved in patients lives and have you found that in delivering this message slightly different than you were I mean I, I, it helps it helps to be a physician like it gets you through the door. Is it is is the question that only physicians can can have these conversations? The answer is no. Yeah. Um, first of all, these conversations aren't one-time conversations. It takes time over and over and over again. And certainly our practice transformation specialists are in the field. They know the data, they know the practices, they know everyone there. They've got an inside scoop and they really can drive change using the here's your numbers. You know, you were 16 million you know, in June and now you're 12 million and you watch that number go down and it makes a difference and people start to see it change. So I, you know, I think I have a unique uh, perspective. Maybe it's not unique because there's more doctors in the room than anyone else. Here, but, <laughs> but just in terms of, um, you know, am I the only person that can actually deliver the message? No. Um, do I play a role in the team reinforcing the message that was already delivered by someone else in the team, which is usually what I'm doing? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I would be remiss if we were on a uh, podcast focusing on risk coding and didn't talk about some of the quirkier elements of risk coding. So uh, one of our favorites here is you touched on this. You have to do it every year. So talk us through that. So, you know, if I if I think, oh, I have this patient with a uh, amputation, let's say, and I coded that um, as part of my annual wellness visit as, a, as I've been, you know, instructed and want to do um, in 2017, when I see them for their next annual wellness visit, how does that play out in terms of communicating that? Yeah, and we usually give the example here of the amputation. When I'm talking to providers, I always say schizophrenia. You know, if you have schizophrenia on December 31st, what do you have on January 1st? Same same issue. Right. No, it's a, it's a great example. I think this is, this, this, so basically, you know, the blind can see and, you know, the... <laughs> The lame can walk on January 1st, and that's that's a problem. 
And I think you have to meet that with a little bit of humor. Can you say more about that? I'm not sure so, everybody would so, follow that. So, so if, basically, CMS, like you said, schizophrenia in, on December 31st, amputation on December 31st, January 1st, they're, they're healed from their schizophrenia. They have normal thought pattern, and you know they, their leg grows back. All diagnoses go all away. All diagnoses start from are zero. going to start from scratch mm -hmm. all over again. The 40 kilogram you know, standard person from med school. Right? Yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Every, everything goes back to normal. And I think that, that most people find that um, frustrating. And I think you have to sort of, you know, under, you know, part of this is being empathetic. Yeah, this is the way it is, but this is, this is it. You do have plenty of opportunities. You don't have to get it all done right away, but this is why you should do an anti-wellness visit. Um, but yeah, it's a, it, I think it's a frustrating thing. It drives people, especially folks who aren't real huge fans of the government. They don't like this. And I think it's really important, it's incumbent on us to understand from Allidade that that is going to be a normal reaction from some doctors. And once you understand and let them sort of, you know, kind of make it funny, but be serious and remind them over and over again and not sort of take it personally when they go, that's just crazy. Right. Um, it's crazy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, that was one of the, as somebody who works on this a lot with you, as I said, um, that's usually something we lead with to talk about, to say, look, I did that. You know, I've checked that box, and, and now it's done, and it's not that kind of thing. you got to keep doing it over and over again. Even when it makes no sense. Exactly. Yeah. yeah exactly. You know, I think the one thing we forgot to ask John is what we've been trying to ask everybody. Yeah. How would you define value-based care? Oh, for me, it's, it's better care at lower cost. Solid. And I, again, with my little things that I say, care comes before cost because it's alphabetical. But care, care first. <laughs> like that. Like that. If you, do, if you do the right thing, cost will come down. Our problem is, and to your example, is we don't spend enough time doing the right thing. As doctors. As doctors, yeah. yeah. You know, just in, in terms of, uh, we've, we've bounced around a bit here, but I think we've, we've, we've covered all our bases. You know, for me, uh, leaving clinical medicine to do this, and I left at an earlier stage of my career than, than, than either of you guys did, um, I get approached by doctors all the time cold calls, cold emails from LinkedIn, and I, people find me, and it's a bit, uh, it's really interesting to me. When I'm talking about working in the Senate and working with a lot of doctors, almost every meeting I had with a group of doctors, uh, one of the physicians in the room would pull me aside afterward and ask me how I did that, like how I did something different than clinical medicine. Um, do you get that? Both of you, Josh and, and John. The topic of physician burnout comes up a fair amount, and I haven't, I don't know what to think of it still of, you know, do you think the, the nurses are not burned out or the PA or the person making your lunch isn't? Um, I know as a society, we want doctors to be happy. They are taking care of us. We want them to enjoy what they do. Um, as a country, we put a lot of resources into making each doctor, so it's not great if they leave the field, but it's hard to know. Is there really physician burnout or is it just doing any one thing that takes your takes your full being to do it well, doing that for an, a lot of years, after a while you'd like to do something different. And do you think there is something special about doctor burnout? It's a good point. Yeah. I'm gonna steer clear of the burnout <laughs> issue for now. I mean, I, I, think, it's, I think it's a real thing. Um, but I don't, I don't know, I'm, I'm honestly, and I'm, etern I'm optimistic that actually getting to value mm. Because one of the things people will say is, I don't have enough time for my patients. Mm -hmm. And if you're in a value-based world, you have time for your patients, mm -hmm. right? Outcomes equals income. Then it really doesn't matter whether you're churning patients. You just spend the time you need with your patients. So you can slow down. Um, 
Now, I don't know that all of our docs would want to do that. I know that when I was seeing patients, I had like an internal clock, and I'm going to like eight minutes. I got to go. I got, I've had enough. I've had enough. I'm talking mm. to you. I need to talk to someone else. So really? I don't know. Yeah, I don't know that you that that mm. those habits can be broken mm-hmm. if you're really in that if you're in that crank in that crank mode. Yeah. But I it, it, I think burnout is real. Figuring that out. I think I hope I hope that what we're doing here is gonna gonna help people. Not because we're gonna hire a whole bunch of doctors <laughs> that work for Allidates. So they don't have to see patients. Exit but we're gonna, strategy. We're gonna, well, I hope we're we're giving some people some money this year. So hopefully that will that will make yeah. um you know things better or easier mm-hmm. for them. And I think the intensity and the of practicing medicine, no matter what your field is, um, definitely contributes to that. And you would say, well, it's, it's intense to work on a trading floor in Wall Street or to manage a ton of money as a private equity fund manager or a hedge fund or whatever the other financial equivalent would be. Or it's intense to be on a uh, client engagement and work for McKinsey and live at airports. But there's a difference. I think that's where the the maybe that's that burnout mm-hmm. element, and I think that allowing uh, empowering our docs and their practices and their whole teams to do this differently and with an eye to value, not just volume, is a is a really interesting step in that direction. Mm-hmm. And I'm you know uh, we at Allidate are fortunate to have a very strong uh, fellows program where we have. Um, recent graduates from graduate school or undergraduate uh, working here are two producers, our fellows, um, and they're exceptional. Um, but a lot of those fellows come before they go to med school. And I'm curious, um, do you think they carry those messages that we've been talking about here in that transition in medicine to med school? Or is it just how they think about medicine? Then? I would say even money. It's really, I mean, one of the things I always tell people when they leave Allidate and go to medical school is be the person, be the person that you are now and want to be when you finish medical school. Change medical school, don't let medical medical school change you. I really will be interested to see what happens with folks. Yeah. It is a meat grinder. It is. Medicine has, I mean, they, they want you to come out and think a certain way. And I don't know that it's changed that much. Mm. I, I hope that the, some of what we're teaching people and they've seen, they'll, they'll, carry through but you know I almost pity the the clerk who says well that's a low-value service oh. <laughs> on rounds I, I dare you yeah. <laughs> let's yeah. see what happens anyway go ahead yeah yeah it's a it's definitely a transition time in medicine across every levels uh, every level and uh, it's a particularly interesting time to be here at a place that's trying to have a positive impact on that thanks so much John for coming in always a pleasure talking to you thanks for having me